Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Thanks, Ben. We're continuing our series through the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And in that, uh, Moses is calling his people Israel to pursue life and what will life look like in this promised land. So we're up to, uh, we're going to be wrapping up, up to chapter 26 this morning. And I want to read for you, Ben's going to uh, be bringing this message to you. Moses has just read out a whole lot of laws to God's people. And this is the end of this part of his speech. So it's Deuteronomy 26, reading from verse 16. The Lord, God, the Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in, his, in obedience to him. That you will keep his decrees, commands and laws. That you will listen to him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised And that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame and honour high above all the nations he has made. And that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Thanks Ross. Good morning everyone. My name is Ben as Ross just mentioned. Um, It's been such a good morning already thinking about what God is doing outside of these walls at Southside. And I just want to point out, uh, like Ben prayed for before, of uh, open doors. There is some prayer booklets. It's International Day of Prayer at the info desk if you want to grab one of them after. Uh, I'd encourage you to do so. We're going to pray though, and then we'll get into this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of grace that we have to be here present this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear your word. Um, we pray that you give us ears to hear and a heart to understand. And we pray, Lord, that Whatever we need this morning, that you might give that to us. If we need comforting, Lord, that this would be a comfort. If we need encouraging, that you'd encourage us. If we need challenging, Lord, that you might do that among us this morning so that we could say that we've met with the living God and be different because of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Old Testament laws have often been a controversial topic. I don't know if you've kind of seen that or witnessed that in conversations or arguments about Christianity from people who don't believe on why they don't believe. I remember this a few years ago. Uh, I went to a debate in the city between an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, and a Christian. And basically the main argument the atheist made against Christianity was to do with the Old Testament laws. You know, his questions were, how could a good God possibly command his nation, to wipe out a whole other nation, a whole other people? How could a wise God who knows everything good in the world tell his people not to eat pig, bacon, ham? How could, how could God do that? How could any reasonable person who believes in the Bible believe in that because of what we find in the Old Testament laws? Now, I remember sitting in on that debate. I don't remember much else from it, but from that moment, I've seen this argument come up over and over and over again, that people, Christians, are crazy because they believe in a God who would say the kind of thing that we find in the Old Testament laws. And so this morning, it's worth pushing into that space. 
It's worth thinking about that a little bit and asking these questions. How could God command the stuff that we see in these laws? How could a wise God command some of the really weird and strange stuff that we find in these passages? Is it reasonable to believe in a God who says this stuff? And then also we want to ask this question, is there any relevance for us? That's where we're going to go today, and we're going to do things a little bit differently because Ross read out the end of chapter 26, but we've got 14 chapters to work through today. So I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're just going to read out all 14 chapters. We're not. Sit down. We're not going to do that, right? You can breathe easy. We won't. But we will do something a little bit different. We're going to give the context, the overview, some of the content, and then the application. So let's dig into this passage, this chunk of text, and we begin with the context. This is really important that we see this because everything so far is really important when the laws come. And you could sum it up like this. Everything that we've seen so far is about relationship first, response second. That's what we've seen, right? That God chose his people. He set his affection upon his people, not because they were good, not because they were big, not because they were strong. We saw this last week. In fact, it's it's definitely not because of them. They're stubborn, but simply because God loves them. So relationship first, God chose his people, loved his people, and then we see response second. So week one, we saw the response was to trust this God. Week two, we saw this response was to listen to this God. Week three, we saw this response was to love this God, and last week we saw it was to humble themselves before God. Everything that we've seen so far could be summed up like this, relationship first, response second. Now this is important that we get this right that this is the pattern throughout the Bible. And the reason it's important is because people love to switch this, where they make response first and relationship second, but when you switch it, it changes to religion leads to a reward. And at that point, people become more like dogs. If you do the right thing, you will get the treat, right? So you sit in the right spot, get baptized, get baptized early enough, get your kids baptized, give the right money, look the right way, and if you do the right religious stuff, then you're going to get the reward. The problem with that is God doesn't treat us like dogs, which is nice, and the whole pattern of the Bible is not religion equals reward, it's relationship first, response second. Okay, so that's, that's the context. All right, then we move to the overview. The overview of these chapters, because you could say that these 14 chapters of laws have one unified message, and this message is this, all of their hearts, all of the time. God is calling his people to respond to this relationship, and he wants all of their hearts, all of the time. Now again, here is a helpful image that we've used in this series a few times of a covenantal relationship. So covenant's a bit of a weird word. We sung about it earlier, but the idea is relational promises. And covenants still exist today, and one of the main ways they exist is in marriages, because two people get up on the stage and they make promises to each other. That's a covenant. Now, we've, we've seen this picture. You know, when, so bride and groom, you don't have to think too hard to get that. Bride and groom are facing each other at their wedding, making these promises to each other. And the groom gets asked at that point, do you take your bride under all circumstances, you know, for for richer or poorer, sickness or health, better or worse. And he looks at his bride and he says, I do. Or if he's edgy, he says, I will. And then you've got the bride and it's her turn, you know, next. And she has the same questions, better or sickness, health, richer, poorer, better or worse. Now, what if in that moment the bride looks to her husband and says, I do, but only on Sundays? 
and some Tuesday nights, if I'm feeling it, and actually, when other guys are around, not then, because I don't want to be tied down if there's some other options on the table. Relationship's going to work, not work, it's never going to work. It's never going to work, because a covenant relationship, in that picture, they need to give all their hearts all of the time. Now, this is what we kind of see in these chapters of Deuteronomy, that this is the picture that God gives, because it's kind of every, all-encompassing, all of life, you know, from what you eat to where you live, all of that sort of stuff, and the, the message is all their hearts, all of the time. Not some of their hearts, some of the time, not when they're feeling up for it, but everything they've got, all of the time. And this is the response God calls His people to make. Now, in this section as well, it's kind of helpful if you were to read the 14 chapters, which I encourage you to do because there's good stuff in there, but if you were to read these chapters, any single one of these laws could be summed up while we're here in the overview in one of three categories. Okay, so a picture on the screen to help us with this. You could say that there are a bunch of laws about worship, engaging with God. So you can see those circles on the screen represent the laws throughout these chapters, and you get a sense there's more up front than there is later on, but it's kind of all throughout. So chances are you pick up a law, you find it in worship. What does it mean to engage with God? Then there's the laws about relationships, how they engage with other people. So you can see less at the start, but as it goes on, there's more about relationships. So, you know, love God, love others, that kind of vibe. But then the third category that we have is behavior. And this is just like everything else. You know, again, like what you eat and where you live and that kind of thing. And you can see that that's throughout this as well. And when you get a sense of that, you can kind of see why it's all their hearts all the time. It's not a part of their life that God doesn't want, that, that the response to God doesn't go into. Okay, so, so that's the overview. So context, relationship first, response second. Overview, all the hearts, all the time. Now let's get into the fun bit, the content. Now there are a lot of chapters here. And again, you can breathe. We're not going to work through every single one of these laws. But we will work through some. And to do that, we're going to have a framework that might help us through these laws. So a framework here is some wonderful laws, some weird laws, and some worrying laws. Okay, so let's start with the easiest one, the wonderful laws, because there's some really good stuff that we see that needs no explanation of just wonderful stuff, beautiful stuff that we see from God for His people. Okay, so we see the first one in chapter 15. There is a law for Israel that in verse 1, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. How good is that? No hex debt, no credit card debt, no home loan after seven years. Isn't that good? How good is that for a law? Like God is saying to his people, just cancel the debts after seven years. Don't hold on to that. Let's get rid of that. It's beautiful. What if our community was like that? That would be so, that would be great. And he even says at one point, don't like, don't try and bend the system where in the fifth or sixth year, that's when you, you heap up your, but it's just this vibe, this idea that right throughout it, just cancel the debts after seven years. Then we also see some, some more good ones about how to treat the poor. And I, and I love this because you get this in verse 10 to 11 of chapter 15 where God says, look out for the poor among you. Verse 11, it says it really clearly. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed to your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. I love that. God is saying, he's building into his community, care for those who don't have much. 
People who are poor, give to them, open-handedly give to them. We also see right throughout this, you get this sense too, it's not just the poor, it's also the widows, the fatherless, the foreigners, those that don't have much. God is building into his nation this ability to care for those who don't have that much. It's, it's beautiful. Then we also get this sense too, as we keep reading in chapter 15, about how they treat slaves. Now, slaves in Israel weren't like what we think of slaves you know, which is oppressive, and one of the reasons it's not like that is because of how God commanded them to treat their slaves. So slaves in Israel were more like hired workers or, you know, farmers or whatever else. And for the servants, the slaves, what's going to happen in the seventh year? You let them go. And you don't just let them go in the seventh year, you give them a hamper of local goodies. Verse 14, supply them liberally from your flock. So give them a couple of sheep, your threshing floor, some food, some wheat, and then from your wine press, a couple of bottles of your nicest wine. Thanks for serving us for the last six years and on their way. It's beautiful, right? It's not oppressive to the people that are working for them. It's good. So you get some really nice laws in this, but my favorite is what we see in chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, you get some wonderful laws where God tells his people to party, right? Three parties a year, and the first one is huge because it's a month long. Chapter 16, verse 1, observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. So that month, you got a party. You got to make sure you're finding joy in what you've got. You know, let's just slow down in life and let's just enjoy what God has done in bringing us out of slavery for a month long. You know, if you've ever needed an excuse to put your Christmas tree up a little bit earlier, I think this is it, a month-long party of all that God has done. But then you keep going and you get the Festival of Weeks, and this comes up in chapter 16, verse 9, where he speaks about this idea of celebrating uh, at the beginning of your harvest. Okay, so verse 9, you kind of get that idea. And in Jewish history, they would have a day off for this. It's like the Eka holiday. So God gives them an Eka holiday, but not to catch the flu or next year COVID probably, but to celebrate the Lord, to celebrate all that God has done for them, to stop and remember, at the beginning of harvest, we're going to stop, we're going to celebrate, we're going to party, and we're going to enjoy that God will provide for us. But then finally, the final festival, the Festival of Tabernacles, this one is a seven-day-long party in chapter 16, verse 13, and then look at verse 14, be joyful at your festival. You, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows who live in your town, let's get everyone around for seven days and just celebrate. How good is that, right? Like God is saying to his people, make sure you party. Make sure you celebrate. Make sure you take moments to enjoy God and his goodness and to reorbit your lives around what he's done in Egypt when he delivered you out of slavery what he's going to do in your harvest, and then what he has done in giving you all of your stuff. It's beautiful, right? Some, I think some of us need to hear that a little bit. Maybe we do need to, this December, have a little bit of a, more of a party-themed December to enjoy what God has done for us. So, so that's the wonderful laws. It doesn't, doesn't take much. We don't have to you know, think about that too much. We just see it, and we can just enjoy it. But then we move through the content to the weird laws, and there are some weird laws, really weird laws. And this 
hopefully, you know, you're allowed to have, I mean, we just said we can have some fun. So if we see some weird laws, we can enjoy these weird laws. So they start in chapter 14, where we've got some weird laws about what to eat. Okay, so you can eat sheep, you can eat goat. If you want some fancy, you can have some mountain goat. There's some other stuff there as well. But in verse 8, the pig is also unclean, so don't eat pig. Okay, so there it is. No ham off the bone this Christmas, or on the bone, or triple smoked ham, or pork, or whatever you want. None of that for Israel. Then it goes on about some other weird stuff um, as well. Just side fact, you can have chicken, but you can't have bats. Something to that, I reckon. I'm not making any claims, but what if we kept that going? And then the final weird stuff, so don't eat roadkill, essentially, but then the last one, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, who's doing that? Right, are you doing that? Is that how you cook your goat curries in its mother's milk? When, that feels really weird, okay? But we've, we've started easy with the weird stuff because it's about to get even weirder. And we see this when we flick over to chapter 23, verse 1, which says this, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of God. Now, the NIV has made that a little bit nicer for us. But if you're sitting there with a different version of the Bible... It literally says, no male who has had his testicles crushed or his penis cut off can enter the temple. That's weird. Right? It's weird why it's a law. It's also weird whose job it is to figure that out at the temple gate. It's really, really weird, that law. But it gets stranger. So chapter 25, we flick over, and so there's, there's a law that, like, if your brother, so if your two brothers are living together and... The wife, and, and the brother dies, but the wife is still alive. So your sister-in-law, what would happen if the brother doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law? Okay, let's read it. So verse 5 of chapter 25. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Okay, so verse 7, however, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say... My husband's brother refuses to carry on the brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law. So the brother then goes to the elders in verse 8, and they ask him, is this true? And then verse 9, so verse 8, he says, I do not want to marry her. And then verse 9, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his family line. That man's line, or to put it in modern terms, his last name, becomes the family of the unsandaled. What's your name? <laughs> I thought this week, I was going to use me as an example, but I have sister-in-law, so I don't want to get in trouble in this moment. But that's weird. And then the weirdest one of the lot, and my favorite of this lot, is verse 11. If two men are fighting, and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant, and she reaches out and seized him by the private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show her no pity. Now, it does sound a little bit harsh, but she's been warned. 
And this is the biblical mandate for no dog shots. Keep it above the belt because if you go there, you're going to lose your hand. It's really weird. So what, what do we do with the weird laws? What do we do with all of this stuff? How do we kind of live our lives knowing that this is in our Bible? Well, there's a couple of things that we've got to do. So firstly, we have to remember that when we're reading these weird laws, we can't compare our 21st century Western, if that's where we're from, ideologies or ideas to the ancient world. Okay, we can't compare today's laws to the ancient laws because this was written like three, 4,000 years ago and culture changes. Now, we know this because if you Google weird laws from the last 100 years, you will find some. Okay, so when we, when we think about the last 100 years, we're okay with this idea because in the last 100 years, man, there's some weird laws from around the world and a quick Google search will tell you this. So in Georgia, America, if you've got two chickens, you can't let one cross the road. It's pretty weird. In Florida, although it's never been enforced, on Thursdays, after 6 p.m., you can't pass wind in public. At home, it's all good, but at public, in public, you can't. And then in Samoa, and this one, I think the wives will understand a little bit, in Samoa, it is illegal to forget your wife's birthday. Is that my wife? <laughs> now, when you see those weird laws of the last hundred years... Right? We know that they're weird, but we also know that they were probably written in a time and place where it wasn't that weird. Right? So in Samoa, I mean, you look at that and you kind of even get that. But like in Georgia, you think about that weird law, but, but you go, well, a hundred years ago, whenever it was made, it probably makes sense to people in Georgia. In fact, for a person in Georgia, that did make sense and it wasn't weird at all to them. But now, culturally, for us here in Australia, we just look at that and go, that's really weird. We don't get it. So culturally, we've missed something that someone from Georgia did, didn't. Now, when we come to these ancient laws, we have to remember this, that this is like laws, not just 100 years ago, but three to 4,000 years ago. And it's possible that culturally, we miss something here that for an ancient Israelite, they wouldn't have missed. For an ancient Israelite, when they're reading this passage, they're not thinking that's weird. They're thinking this is good somehow. But culturally, we might just have missed that a little bit. And we can't really appreciate that because we've just moved on so far. We've, cultures change over time. So that's the first thing we've got to remember. We can't just compare the, you know, to 21st century ideas. We have to kind of compare it or think about the ancient Israelite. But the second thing that's going to help us here too is that some of these laws, many of these laws were about them being holy. And holy is this word that means set apart. Okay, the idea is God is different. He's creator, we are created. And so he calls his people to be set apart and to be different. And many of the laws, we are told how they are to be different from the other nations. So you get like worship laws and it's very clear, don't be like the other nations, don't worship like them because God wants his people to look different to be different, to love differently, all of that sort of stuff. Now, sometimes we see what those other nations were doing, but other times we don't. But what if some of the weird laws that we are reading about, what if other nations were doing that? What if like Canaan, which we'll look at in a moment, who are evil, what if they were known for eating whatever food they wanted? What if for Canaan, their main dish was cooking a young goat in its mother's milk? And God is saying here, hey, don't be like them. You've got to be different. 
You've got to be set apart and different to the nations around you. What if there were other cultures, and there were, who practiced to enter into their worship or their God to cut off male anatomy? And God is saying to his people, hey, we are not like those other nations. You see, sometimes we see what those nations were doing, but other times we don't see that. And yet, you get this vibe right throughout that this is for his people to be holy, to be set apart, to be different. So I think when you see those two things, when you begin to see, okay, we can't compare it to 21st century ideas, and it's a call for them to be holy and different to the other nations, I think what we begin to see is that some of these weird laws are going to be weird for us, probably always will be weird to us, but for them, it's not actually unreasonable to ask them of this. In fact, you can say that it's reasonable for an ancient Israelite to live this way. So I think that helps us through the weird laws. Okay, so you've got wonderful laws, you've got weird laws, and then the most difficult bit of all of this, you've got the worrying laws. Because when you read through this section of the Bible, there are some really worrying things. Like how does God, a good God, command his people to wipe out a whole nation of Canaan? And what's with all the death penalty stuff? Because that comes up a lot. Now, the Canaan stuff, and if you haven't been with us, Canaan were the nation they're about to go into, and this law has kind of come up, or this idea has come up in chapter 3, and chapter 7, and chapter 12, and chapter 20, and it's to wipe everything and anything that exists in Canaan. So let's have a look at this worrying law. It begins in chapter 12. We see this in verse 2. It says this, Completely destroy all the places on the high mountains, on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing, wor- uh, dispossessing, dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and bur- burn their ashrapoles poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. God is saying that there can't be any of their religious practices left over. But then in chapter 20, this is where we see the kind of the the rawness of this, chapter 20, verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Anything to do with death is concerning, but this is particularly concerning. Wipe out everything that breathes. It's also concerning, as we read through this, all of the death penalty stuff, because there's a lot of death penalty stuff. And the death penalty stuff for Israel, it's way harsher than we would think of. I mean, even in Australia, we don't have this, but, but have a look. So chapter 17, we see this. So if you get someone who worships other gods, in verse 3, bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky, what's to happen if someone worships other gods? Verse 5, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to the city gate and stone that person to death. That's worrying. Then in verse 8, we see 
another one. So if a case comes before your court in verse 8, that are too difficult for you to judge, you get the priest to come in to make the judgment. Verse 12, anyone who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God is to be put to death. That too is pretty worrying. Or chapter 21, verse 18. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son, Verse 20, they go to the elders, they say, this son of ours is stubborn, he will not obey us, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Verse 21, then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. That too is worrying. There is a lot of death penalty stuff in these passages. It's not just those three, there's others as well. But what do we do with this? What do we do with all of the death stuff that just feels so concerning? And what do we do with God who commands to wipe out a whole nation? Well, as we think about this, there's four things, four quick things to help us through these worrying laws. Okay, four quick things. Number one, the first thing is this is a specific command for a specific people. Okay, the word there that for holy war is harem, that's the Hebrew word for it. And the idea behind it is it's an exclusive one-off event for a specific people. Now, this is important because throughout history, Christians have tried to use this idea to wipe out whole nations or religious groups. In the Crusades, in one of the darkest moments of our history, they've tried to do that from these passages and say it's holy war. It's never meant to be for that. This was a specific command for a specific people. Number two, this specific people were especially evil. And God knows that. Now we see this particularly, or an example of this in chapter 12. We see this in verse 31. It says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifice to their gods. God knows their detestable things. He knows the evil. He knows the depths of their depravity. And we get a glimpse of some of it here. They burn their children in the fire to gods that don't see them or hear them or speak to them. They can't do anything. Now, we feel that. You know, we've been spending the last, what, 24, uh, 24 days or the last four weeks on this journey with Cleo Smith and, you know, praise God that they found her this week. But for many of us, we were considering the whole child abduction stuff again and what should happen to someone who kills a child. And there is a unified voice from everyone there that we long for justice. These people were doing that to their own children, burning them in the fire to gods that don't even exist. And God knows that. He knows the depths of their depravity. And He knows the potential of the future. God understands fully more than what we do that this specific people were especially evil. So, number one, Specific command for specific people. Number two, they're especially evil. Number three, there is still grace on offer if they would just fall at the mercy of God. 
despite all of their evil, and despite all that's going on here, when we get to the end of Deuteronomy and they finally go into the land, we enter into the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, they send some spies into the land and they come across this prostitute who's not particularly good. She's not particularly religious. But she has heard of what God has done because Canaan knew what was coming for them. Right? They could see Israel across the grass. They could see them. They knew they were next. And they had heard, she says this, they had heard of what God had done in delivering them out of Egypt. In the whole Sihon and Og with those two big giants of big armies, they knew that Israel were a reckoning force and that God was with them. And what does this prostitute do? What does Rahab do? She falls at the mercy of God. And she's held up in Hebrews 11, not just as someone who lived and survived, but someone who trusted in God. There is grace if only they would fall at the mercy of God. They had the chance to fall at the mercy of God, and only Rahab does. I think that helps with the worrying laws. I think that helps us with this. And then number four, this is a raw, brutal, real reminder that sin leads to death. You know, you picture this Israel force having to do this. Blood on their hands, it is this crazy real reminder that sin always leads to death. Sin is this rebellion against God. It is ignoring God, right? We, we kind of dumb it down to the good things we don't do and the bad things we do, which is true, but sin is offensive to God. It's ignoring Him. And sin always leads to death. And there is no escaping that. That is the punishment from a holy and just God for sin. And this is the real, raw reminder that if we live a life rebelling God or or ignoring Him or doing whatever we want, then the punishment for our sin will be death. And this is why, for Israel, the death penalty was in their community. You know, we saw it with the, the rebellious son that the whole town would see what would happen as a reminder to them of the seriousness of sin. They, they would have seen this. They would have realized this. God's not someone to be messed with. He's a holy and perfect God. And yes, He loves us, but His justice is brilliant. And sin leads to death. Now, I think as we, you know, as we see this, it's worth just taking a side point to say, as we see sin leads to death, and as we remember this Israelite community who were stubborn and rebellious, does it not just yell out and scream out how much they're going to need a Savior? Does it not just scream to us, Jesus? But we'll get there. Now, as we see these things, I, I think this helps us. And I think we kind of come away seeing this stuff that perhaps God knows And it's possible that God knows more than what we know. It's possible that he understood the future, he understood the importance of this decision, and he's the one who made it. And this is an invitation to trust God. Now, if you're going to leave today with questions, or if this is still worrying you, please chat to me after. I'd love to talk more about how we do this, but I do think these four things help. So as we work through these laws, these are, this is the content. You've got wonderful laws, you've got weird laws, and you've got worrying laws. Now, as we f- kind of finish up and get to the end of it, isn't it worth asking the question, what do we do with this? 
How do we do anything with this? What is the application for us here? Well, throughout this series, we've been on this journey where we've been asking three questions to get to us. And the first question is, what does it mean for the original audience? Now, we've seen that today. God has given his people clarity on the way of life that if they live the way that God has called them to, they will flourish. They will find life. You know, in the Bible reading, it was, it was there that we held up among the nations at the end of chapter 26. So for the original audience, this was their real way of life. You live this way, you will live, you will find the fullness of joy and you will flourish. But then step two, we want to ask the question, how does this point us to Jesus? How do 14 chapters of law point us to Jesus? Because the whole Bible's about Jesus. So has this section about Jesus. Well, there's this moment for Jesus in the book of Matthew where he rocks up and he's about to preach this famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. But before he preaches this sermon, Jesus has this line that is crazy powerful in chapter 5 of Matthew where he says this. In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is saying, the Old Testament law, we're not getting rid of it. Instead, he's saying, but there's a, there's a new way to read it and understand it. It's through Jesus because he's fulfilled it. Now, what does he mean through that? What does he mean when he says, I fulfilled it? Well, it's kind of like this. Uh, Jesus to the law is like glasses to someone who's a little bit blind, right? So if you need glasses and you look out in life and you see things, you, you do get things and I do need glasses. So you, you see things, but it's a little bit blurry. And then you put glasses on and you have clarity. Jesus is that to the law. He brings clarity to the law. He helps us understand what God was speaking about. And he brings more clarity than even just reading Deuteronomy will bring you. So what's the clarity that Jesus brings? Well, Jesus shows us with clarity that God wants relationship first, response second. This is what he shows us. Because when Jesus rocks up, his whole mission is to give people a relationship with God. Right? Because for us to have a relationship for God, with God, for anyone to, they need someone to deal with the problem of sin. If sin leads to death, how do we have life? Someone's got to fix that. And this is what Jesus did. And so when he rocked up, he lived this law-abiding life where he was perfect, innocent. He did everything right all of the time. He gave God the Father all of his heart, all of the time. He did it perfectly. But then Jesus died. The innocent one died. Now, how's that work? Because sin leads to death and he didn't sin. Well, Jesus was dying so that guilty people could go free. It's, it's what great theologians, people who read the Bible a lot, it's called the great exchange where Jesus takes our place and we get to go free. Jesus shows us with great clarity, relationship first. God longs for this relationship with you. And then Jesus shows with great clarity, response second. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount, you read it, it's all about all of your heart, all of the time. And Jesus gives us a clarity on how we read the laws. So some of the civil laws are gone, but some of them had wisdom and principles behind them. So when we read Deuteronomy, we kind of think about what's the ethical, spiritual principle that lies behind these laws. And then we read it in Jesus and we see it clearly in, in him. And really, you could sum up everything that Jesus says like this, all of your heart, all of the time. That's what Jesus wants. So you see how these laws point us to Jesus. Response first, relationship first, response second. 
Then finally, the third question we want to ask is, okay, so what about us? What do we do with this today? What relevance is there for us today? Well, it is really this simple relationship first, response second. So if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God, Jesus is inviting you into one. He's inviting you to trust him. He's inviting you to rest in him, in his perfect life, in his death, and in his resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might find life. You might flourish. Jesus is inviting you to that today. And it's an inward decision where we just go, yeah, I trust in Jesus. But then what it means for us is relationship first, response second. Now, this is important for us to think about because when it comes to the law, we love to do one of two things. We love to either either overplay it or underplay it. So we love to overplay the law, and we say the law means everything. This is where religion equals reward, and all that I do is going to get me God. And so what happens when the law is everything, we fake it until we make it, and we do all the right stuff, and our efforts is what makes us good enough for God. But the law is crushing if it's everything. If my works, get me God, it will crush you because what is going to happen is you're going to fail. You're going to have a bad day where you you fail. It's going to be a moment where you're pushed and you just can't do it anymore. If the law is everything, it will crush you and you'll never be good enough. And the, the weight that we live with is this shame that I am not enough. I'm not good enough. But then there's an equal and opposite error where we underplay it. And this is where we say not it means everything, but where it means nothing. The way of Jesus means nothing. The way of the law means nothing. And we underplay it and we go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give half of my life, half of the time. Half of my heart. Right? So I'm going to give God Sundays and some Tuesdays and sometimes when I'm feeling up for it, but the rest of the time I'm not going to because I'm saved by Jesus, so it doesn't matter what I do. Who cares about the the Old Testament way of life. Who cares about the way of Jesus? Because I've got him and I'm saved. But if we underplay the law and say it means nothing, it's an equal and opposite error. So what do we do? How do we get this right? Well, it's quite simple. We get what Deuteronomy was saying, what Jesus shows us. We get this right. Relationship first, response second. So I trust in Jesus He is my source of security and strength. He is my salvation. I am right before God, and I have eternal life, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus has done. And then I respond with all of my heart, all of the time, like a husband and wife as they go into the rest of their lives. So I go into the rest of my life with all of my heart, all of the time, and when I fail and when I stuff up, I fall like Rahab at the mercy of God. And it's there that I find grace. And that he gives us the ability to get back on to giving all of our heart all the time. So that's what it means for us. Relationship first, response second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning that you would help us now move into whatever is next for us. God, there is a response for all of us that you're calling us to. And for all of us, that looks a little bit different. So we ask, God, for your grace this morning to act on this and that you would give us the ability to do so. Thank you so much for your mercy. 
Thank you so much that we have a gracious God who loves us and calls us to a relationship first and response second. We pray this in Jesus' name.